0: With imposter syndrome, when there is a success or achievement, there is this tendency to either put it down to luck, fluke, I only got that job because that manager really liked me, I only got into the course because they made a mistake on the admissions process, I only got the job because nobody else applied. It's all of this kind of externalising the factors that lead to your success, or I have to work harder than everybody else is very characteristic of the imposter syndrome as well.
1: this is Ben Morton and you're listening to the Ben Morton Leadership Podcast and a very special welcome to this episode episode 122 which marks the start of the eighth season of the show it is the weekly show that brings you inspiring interviews with senior leaders and genuine subject matter experts all designed to help you be the very best leader that you can possibly be it's my gift to you and it's totally free in today's episode we are taking another deep dive into the increasingly relevant topic of imposter syndrome with Cass dunn Cass is a clinical and coaching psychologist and mindfulness meditation teacher She also hosts one of Australia's highest rated health and wellbeing podcasts, Crappy to Happy, and is the author of three best-selling crappy to happy books, all aimed at helping people find more meaning and joy in life, work and relationships. She's recently published an Audible original called The Imposter Solution, which outlines her five-step framework for overcoming imposter syndrome and cultivating unshakable self-confidence. For several years now, Cass has been the expert psychologist on some of Australia's most popular celebrity fitness programs, regularly sharing simple science-based strategies to help thousands of men and women to manage their minds, boost their mood and achieve their personal goals. And today she's sharing some of that expertise with us and helping us better understand and manage those feelings of self-doubt that many of us experience from time to time. Before we get into this episode though, folks, please do head over to the online courses page of my website at ben-morton.com where you can sign up for my 10 for 10 leadership course. It's totally free, it comes in bite-sized chunks, and it covers some of the most common leadership topics and challenges that I get asked about. It also gets consistently great feedback. Now though, and without any further delay, let's get into this week's episode, which I know you're going to get huge value from. Cass, a very warm welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you with us today because this episode feels like a long time in the making, right?
0: Yes, it has been. And it is great to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh,
1: It's my absolute pleasure. So, look, let's dive straight in. I want to talk to you about something that seems to be cropping up a lot in sort of the leadership and management press and media it continues to crop up quite a lot on this show when I'm interviewing MDs and CEOs, which is the topic of imposter syndrome. Mm. Can you just start off, like how do you define imposter syndrome? What What is this thing that we all seem to be talking about a lot all of a sudden?
0: Everybody is talking about it a lot lately. I've noticed that as well. Imposter syndrome is the persistent belief that you are not as smart or talented or capable or experienced or competent as other people think you are despite all evidence to the contrary. And that last bit I think is really important because I think a lot of people use the term imposter syndrome when they're going into a new situation, starting a new job, I don't know what I'm doing, I've, you know. We all use the term imposter syndrome, but the really, the genuine imposters, not that they are imposters, but let's use that term, the ones who have been doing the job, they're getting the promotions, they've got the success, they're getting the awards and they still have this persistent feeling that it's only a matter of time before people wake up that they're not actually really that smart. That's what it is.
1: So that's really interesting. Having been speaking about this for a while myself and having chatted to a few people, I don't think I've ever really quite picked up as clearly as I have now on that piece, despite the evidence.
0: Yes. Yes. Despite the evidence. Because I hear people use the term imposter syndrome and I go, "Mm, I think what you're really talking about there is just pretty human natural self-doubt that we all those of us who aren't complete narcissists you know that we all experience when we're going into something new like there is an element of uncertainty and can I can I step up and will I be okay and will I cope and will I manage but when you're the CEO when everybody's telling you when you're winning the awards you know and you're still feeling on the inside like and at any time now, people are going to really twig. Like the jiggle be up, and they'll realise yeah. I'm not that I'm not that smart. <laughs> then that's really genuine imposter syndrome. It, it
1: strikes me as we're having this conversation. Then this links to lots of things. Perhaps a, a little knowledge can sometimes be quite a dangerous thing, can't it? In so much as some of these, I guess, psychology concepts that get spoken about a lot again in terms of leadership and, uh, and management it's very easy to grab hold
0: of the title Mm, yes
1: and then almost self-diagnose that's me whether it be imposter syndrome or I mean the 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 great classic that people have misunderstood for so long is introversion extroversion thinking that's about whether you're shy or or outgoing yes Uh, it could potentially be quite unhelpful do you think
0: yeah, it can. And I guess the other important thing to point out about imposter syndrome is it's not actually a syndrome. Like, it's not a diagnosable condition. I'm a psychologist. There's nothing in the DSM that says this is imposter syndrome. It's more appropriately called the imposter phenomenon. And the right. it was two psychologists who came up with that term all the way back in the 70s, and they noticed amongst their female students postgraduate students highly intelligent successful achieving again who had this persistent feeling they didn't belong that they got into the course by mistake and then they looked further and they at the time thought it was predominantly a, a female issue since then we know that lots of men experience it as well but to now it is not actually a psychological condition and therefore there's no real criterion you know like you can say like anxiety or depression or Things like that that you can kind of diagnose because you meet a certain criteria that doesn't exist for the imposter phenomenon. So it's very easy for people to just latch onto it, as you say, and say, "Oh, I feel like an like, I feel like a fraud." Like I, I get that, yeah, without really understanding the depth of it. And,
1: and where does it come from, Cass? Does it originate from anywhere, Are there kind of a, mm. a a number of places where it tends to originate for for a number of people? Can it be can it be cultural? In the within the organization.
0: Oh, for sure, for sure. So, that's a really good question, and everybody who experiences the imposter phenomenon kind of wants to know because we're a very intellectual beings. We're cerebral creatures and we're going, how do I don't want to understand this? Why do I feel like this? Where did this come from? But the fact is there's many, many different experiences that can contribute to it. So, I always talk about, you know, I'm a psychologist, of course. I always go back to your Childhood and family messaging, and whether you grew up believing you're the smart one or you're not the smart one, or and then in industries that are highly competitive, where there's a lot of competition and comparison that can feed into it as well. Women experience it in male dominated industries, right? And again, we've got to remember too that we talk about this as an individual experience, but there's a lot of social and cultural contributing factors you know when women particularly or people of color for example who have historically been conditioned to believe that they are worth less you know the world tells you that you're worth less the evidence is everywhere then it's hard not to internalize some of that so it's like I say it's not that like white men can't experience it but there are certain groups in society who will be likely to experience it you know more What I will say about that early childhood stuff though, and this is why I say to people, don't get too deep into the analyzing because you know whether your parents made you feel like you were never good enough and nothing you ever did was good enough, or whether your parents told you that everything you did was perfect and brilliant and amazing and you could never do anything wrong, both of those experiences can lead to somebody later having those feelings of being a fraud. So different experiences can ultimately lead to the same kind of result. So there's not like one particular pattern, you know, from your family of origin that might lead to imposter syndrome, yeah.
1: And what are some of the, um, I'm not sure if this is the correct terminology and language, I was going to say signs and symptoms or or behaviours or thinking patterns that maybe we can look for in ourselves or those around us that would help sort of distinguish between a genuine case of imp- the imposter phenomenon, yep. compared to perhaps sort of normal human un- uncertainty about starting a new new job or stepping into your first M- MD role. Like, what's the what? What can we try and spot that might tell us which way we're we're swaying?
0: There are some patterns of thinking and behaving that are fairly typical. So, and th- some of this goes all the way back to Clance and ims the two psychologists who first identified this phenomenon. And what they noticed and what I see in the people that I work with too is that genuine imposter syndrome is characterized by an inability to internalize your achievements or your success. This is why no amount of success helps to bolster your confidence. Like if you have self-doubt, I don't know if I can do that. And then you go and do it, then you go, oh, well, I did do that. And typically that will give you that, that you know, that boosts your confidence, that boosts your sense of self-efficacy. I can do that. And you can go and do it again. With imposter syndrome, when there is a success or achievement, there is this tendency to either put it down to luck, fluke, uh, right place, right time. I only got that job because that manager really liked me. I only got into the course because they made a mistake on the admissions process. I only got the job because nobody else applied. It's all of this kind of externalizing the factors that lead to your success or I have to work harder than everybody else. And so overwork, overthinking, overachieving, overfunctioning is very characteristic of the imposter syndrome as well. The other thing about the imposter phenomenon is that when there's a setback or a failure or something goes wrong, very quick to internalise and completely own failure. So there's they take failure as a reflection of their self-worth, but they uh, have a really struggle to own achievement and put that down to their inherent capability, it's always either I just got lucky or I just worked harder than everybody else. So therefore the behaviours are often things like, I call it the perfectionism procrastination loop, overwork and avoidance basically. So I'm either overworking in order to demonstrate my worth or to feel like I'm that's what I need to do to be as good as people think I am. And sometimes that can also trigger avoidance as in either avoiding Applying for jobs, avoiding, applying for the promotion or just procrastination, like feeling so overwhelmed by the task that I just put it off and put it off and put it off. And so, and then at the last minute, having to really rush and get something over the line, which then these behaviors then reinforce it. Basically, it creates this self-perpetuating loop. The only reason I got successful, if I overworked is because I worked so hard and I don't know how sustainable that is. Or I just fluked it. I got it over the line and thank God, like I got lucky this time. I don't know if I'd get so lucky again next time. So the success is not in their minds, is not repeatable. And that's why no matter how successful they become, it never goes away.
1: So is there a linkage then that we sometimes see between imposter syndrome and burnout or being on that burnout spectrum, right?
0: Yes hundred percent 100 percent imposter syndrome will lead to burnout for sure if it's not managed it does it really creates that overworking pattern it's also there's a woman called Valerie Young who also um, made this her life's work when she first heard about imposter syndrome when she was a graduate student she resonated with it and then she went on to study it and she interviewed a lot of people and women I think particularly but she she had created these sort of profiles of imposters and she identified this one as being the expert, which is I've got to keep on having more qualifications, more certifications, more courses, go back to uni, never feeling smart enough. Then there's the perfectionist, obviously having to do everything perfectly every time because if I don't, then I'm obviously not good enough and a whole bunch of them. The natural genius is an interesting one. That's her term for it. And that is if I don't master this thing immediately, then clearly I'm not competent like there's no room for having to learn and grow. Like if I'm not across everything straight away, then maybe I'm not cut out for this. Yeah. I'm sure people listening to this will resonate with some of these.
1: I'm resonating with all of them, <laughs> to a to a degree.
0: Right, you're right. <laughs> <You're on. laughs> and then the soloist is I have to do it all myself, asking for help. Is kind of a sign of weakness. And then she's got this other one called the super, like the superwoman or the superman, which is basically, it's the perfectionist on steroids. Like to be good enough, I have to be not just overachieving in my work life, but in every aspect of my life, I've got to be the perfect parent, the best friend, the, you know, the perfect sibling, keeping a perfect house. And so all of them in some way will lead to overworking, overwhelm, anxiety, and ultimately burnout if it's not managed. Because, the other thing about imposters is they don't tend to talk about it. Nobody really wants to share with other people that they, that they I actually don't belong here, like I shouldn't be in this job. It's interesting that you say your guests will self-identify as that, but many people in the workplace will keep it to themselves because it's a bit vulnerable to share that and so therefore they never really, they never really have the opportunity, that is, there's no support for them. They don't want to ask for help. They don't want to get other people on board with it they they tend to be quite isolated
1: i think that's the strange thing about a podcast right people feel it's quite intimate when you when you're recording it and they forget that thousands of people are then going to be be listening (laughs) to it so maybe in a way it's a it's a good source of therapy right who knows
0: Yeah, yeah 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 very much And, and, you know, I relate to a lot of it. I think one of the reasons I've made this the focus of my work now is because when I first twigged, I mean, I learned about this years ago. I was doing a coaching psychology degree, a master's degree, and we talked about leaders and CEOs of these big, you know, corporations. And I didn't fit that profile, so I didn't resonate. And then many years later, just in the last few years, my first book was coming out and people were saying, that's amazing. You must be so excited. It's publication day. And I honestly... My overriding emotion was dread. I, w- I honestly thought it's people are going to be so disappointed. There's mm. such high expectations about this. It's only a little book. They're expecting a big book. You know, I, it was all this pressure that I was putting on myself and it actually took me a while to realise. And then I started looking at the other patterns in my work, the overworking, the making things much more complicated than they needed to be because I felt like that's what I had to do to for people to be impressed. I thought, Wow. This is this is something to look at. And I realized this is actually this is imposter syndrome. And so once I identified it in myself, then I could spot it in lots of other people. And, you know, then I really dug into it and came to understand it and work out, you know, what to do about it. And therefore that's that's why mm-hmm. it's what I teach now.
1: And <laughs> In a minute, I want to come on and ask about some maybe simple steps and things we can do as an individual, maybe to, to help. But listening to you talk as well, it, it sounds to me, is there a link as well between imposter syndrome and people having a perhaps um, extremely or over heightened negativity bias? H-
0: highly self-critical is probably the key. I don't believe I necessarily have a strong, uh, a strong negativity bias. I tend to be very optimistic and, you know, I've worked for years in posit- positive psychology and mindfulness and coaching and mm. I'm the most optimistic person, you know, that I know. But I know that I'm also highly, highly self-critical. All of my negativity is, is directed towards myself. And anybody with Imposter syndrome would relate to that. It's a lot of self-critical, self-judgment, and so therefore, it's the self-compassion that is really, really key. One of the keys, I guess, to starting to turn it around is to actually be able to have the ability to offer yourself some self-kindness and give cut yourself some slack.
1: Got you. Are are there any stats or studies that you're aware of that just indicate how prevalent it is amongst senior execs and and people like that? Sort of, what, what are we talking? How much does it crop up?
0: Studies vary. So I've, I have found it really hard to pin that down. Typically, I think there was a meta analysis done that found that 70% of people will say that they have experienced at, it at some time. And I think that's probably, that sounds probably right. It might even be a bit higher than that. But at least 70% of people will, will say that they have felt it at some point in their career and their life. Mm.
1: Hey, quick one for you. I want to make sure that you know about my 10 for 10 leadership program. It's an online program that's totally free. It's bite-sized and it covers some of the most common leadership topics and challenges that I frequently get asked about. It's also a course that gets consistently great feedback. You can find out more by heading to the online courses page of my website at ben-morton.com. And and the other thing I want to ask you about, because you said it so many times, is is luck. Mm. So that really comes up as a a theme on the podcast. Does it? Especially, again, talking to the, the MDs and the CEOs, talking about what it was like when they stepped into that role. And so many of them, even General David Petraeus, like former head of the U.S. Army, former head of the cia even he spoke spoke about luck they all say thing think or not all but most of them say i i got lucky i i was lucky and i've just got really curious about this idea of of luck so i often then follow up and say well do you really think you were lucky or was there something else and then some will go well actually no kind of luck is hard work and judgment luck is timing and judgment and they sort of deconstruct it and generally get to the point and say well actually no i kind of Created my my own luck. I did the right things, put myself in the right opportunity, right place to seize the opportunities. Then there is a chunk who go, no, I was was just lucky. I don't really deserve it. I was just, I was just lucky. Um, So that seems like a a common.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. And I remember a few years ago, somebody saying to me, "I was doing a particular job, and I think it was when I first started working, kind of in the media and." you know, getting some really good opportunities. And I remember saying somebody to me, uh, somebody saying to me, (laughs) that was a bad sentence, I remember somebody saying to me, oh, that was so lucky that you got that, somebody introduced you or whatever it was that happened. And I remember at the time actually really taking offence to it because I knew that several other people had been given the same opportunity and had not done a very good job of it. So I, in that situation, I kind of knew That, yes, I was fortunate to have an introduction, but it was what I brought to it that actually made it successful. But I think that tendency to say, we say that as a bit of a throwaway even to other people like, oh, what a lucky break or how lucky. And I think we've got to be really careful about pushing back against that kind of thinking because more often than not, like you said, it's not just luck. It's, hmm. you know, you create opportunities or you maximize opportunities because there'll be just as many people who had a lucky break. You know, it went nowhere because they didn't have what it takes to make it work or make it successful or to deliver the goods. So no matter how much luck, there is always an element of competence that, you know, follows it up.
1: Yeah, no, 100% agree. So what are some of the simple things that people could perhaps do then, Cass, if they, they think they... They're in a spell where their imposter is perhaps getting in, getting the better of them. Are there any simple things we can do ourselves?
0: I think that hopefully just listening to this, and I think for many people, just having those little light bulbs come on and recognizing those unhelpful stories that they're telling themselves can just that in itself can be really helpful for people, so that we can you know, stop and take a step back and have a look at those stories and actually, you know, like even just acknowledging, well, it wasn't luck. I actually made that opportunity. Like, I'm sure you've been helpful in having that conversation with people. The thing that I try to reinforce is that if you look online or if you, even the books that are out there on this topic, many of them will talk about approaching this from a change of thinking kind of perspective. Like you just got to change the way you think. which is very traditional old school psychology, change the way you think and you'll change the way you feel and you'll behave differently. And while that absolutely has a place, of course, we have to challenge those unhelpful thoughts. Of course, we have to reframe some of that unhelpful thinking and those negative self-critical thoughts that we have. I believe that we need to go a little deeper than that. I think that the way psychology is going now is that we are all acknowledging how our early experiences, not to get too psychological, but how our early experiences impact us at a cellular level, like our whole nervous system is conditioned and programmed. And if your nervous system feels unsafe... And you might not consciously feel unsafe, but if your early conditioning is that, because imposter syndrome, let's face it, is fear. It's fear of judgment, fear of being found out, fear of being exposed, fear of making a fool of yourself. Mm. That fear is operating at the nervous system level and you can't think your way out of that. You actually have to have tools and strategies to calm down your physiology. I always say to people, your physiology doesn't respond to language, your physiology responds to physiology. So things like slow, deep breathing, Mm -hmm. as simplistic as that sounds, that's the reason it's effective because your physiology only responds to physiology and a slow, deep breath communicates to your brain, oh, I'm not in danger. I'm safe now. So something as simple as that, yoga, movement, moving your body, new psychology techniques, even that sound a bit weird and out there, but things like EFT tapping, You know, that actually go directly to calming your nervous system, reducing activity in the amygdala, that fear center of your brain, are highly effective.
1: So what's EFT tapping?
0: Oh, we could have a whole extra conversation about that. That's this thing where you tap on meridian points on your face. Okay. And people think it's very weird and out there, but it's actually got a load of science to to back it up now. It's highly effective, particularly with anxiety, PTSD, and we know now from MRI studies that it actually does change activity in your brain. It reduces cortisol um, levels in your body very quickly and very significantly. It's just a particular um, points on your inner eyebrow, outer eyebrow, kind of under your chin. I could show you, but it's a podcast. People can't see me. And you just kind of go through this round of tapping and that's what it, that's the effect that it has on your on your body. And when you've calmed your nervous system, when you're not in that heightened stress response then you can have a chance of reframing some of the unhelpful thinking. But you can't change your thinking while you're in that sort of stressed, anxious state because you physiologically, your brain literally cuts off access to the prefrontal cortex. You can't think your way out of anxiety or stress or feeling, you know, fear. So I always teach people, you know, some of those more body-based approaches to calming themselves. And then I always come back to, you know, we need to unlearn all of the conditioning that we've all grown up with, which is that we are very hooked on praise and criticism. We all need to unhook. And it's very hard because we've grown up in a world where we're judged and ranked and marked and graded. And, you know, we compete for jobs and compete for promotions. That's why, you know, highly competitive industries, sales industries, you know, law, things like that, medicine, you know, they kind of feed this this fear and insecurity. So being able to really come back to cultivating a sense of your self and your self-worth that is not contingent on other people's opinions is yeah. key. It's hard, but it is critical.
1: So let's let, let me dive in and ask you a linked but slightly tangential question on on this, right? I'm always struck by, uh, amazed, interested in how many links and similarities there are between great leadership and being a great parent. I I often joke like if the leadership gig doesn't work out for me, I'm going to get into like parenting. Not not that I'm a perfect parent by any chance, but but linked to what you've just said about um, unhooking or uncoupling ourselves from our sense of self-worth from praise and criticism. I think just this week it might have been Tuesday afternoon. My daughter showed me uh, a piece of English she was working on on at school. She's she's just turned 11. And we're trying to help her with her with her spelling at, at the moment because it's not great. And I w- went went through it with her and I was kind of correcting some of her spellings with her, but I was really conscious of trying to give um, a lot more praise and focus on how good the creative piece of writing with and not, not focus it on the spelling errors of, mm. of which there, there were a lot. <laughs> um, and then I think it was two days later, my wife was um, the first one sort of putting Freya, Freya to bed. And there was a degree of tiredness there because she had a, Two full-on days of sport and a couple of late nights, so she was tired. And we know from our daughter, she's always particularly emotional when mm. when she's tired. Mm-hmm. But suddenly, she says to to Joe, my wife, "Daddy went through through my English. I was really pleased with it, but he just found all the spelling mistakes. And I tried so hard to like really dial up the the, the praise and mm. sort of make it not come across as criticism. But she still focused so heavily on. Everything that she'd done wrong. Mm. <laughs> so I'm not sure. What my question is like, but it's human nature. <laughs>
0: yeah, but it's kind of human nature, isn't it? That that's what we do, and kids especially do that. This is why we're all a little bit <laughs> up. And, like we we, <laughs> we because we we all have have been children who are just so like lapping up that positive attention, that positive feedback, and any any inkling that maybe we've done something that wasn't you know good enough. As parents, you know, you could do the best job that you can, but kids are going to pick up on that stuff because we, you know, hook into, and there's a reason for that. Like we're programmed as, especially as children so dependent on our parents' love and approval and validation and negative emotional experiences, anything we perceive as a negative emotional experience imprints way, way more strongly on us than any positive because it's our brain remembering, don't do that again. Because that's painful, and we you don't want to. Yeah, it's it's our brain keeping us safe, and it's not very effective for our self esteem, sadly. But um, but that's what our brain does. So that's why they say you've got to, you know, counteract every negative with x times more positives. We've got to teach our kids resilience too. You know.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm I'm fully on board with that. Yeah. yeah. Do you want to go back as well, Cass, to something you said a, a few moments ago? I I love it in a podcast or a conference when you get one of those sort of moments where you just go, oh, my God, when you just hear something. Your point you made earlier around physiology only responds to physiology, mm. that, that has just been imprinted on my brain. Like That is so, so powerful, right? And straight away I made the link to – Sort of the the military, and I was never in the special forces in the military, but I know the military focus a lot on on breathing and box breathing techniques. Yes. So when they suddenly are in contact with the enemy and there's bullets all around them and it's all going to to hell, they they train them to kind of breathe, mm-hmm. which I guess is that right. The, exactly. the only thing they can do is counteract physiology with physiology,
0: exactly. Exactly. Because our nervous system is operating out of our conscious awareness. Like we're not telling our body to breathe, our heart to beat, but we can direct it. You know, we can yeah. take some control over it. So when your entire nervous system is responding without any, out of your control, then we can kind of come in and influence it and counteract those messages by managing our physiology. And the breath is just the most powerful. Like it is. The most effective i love that there are these other tech um, modalities like i said emdr eft things like that that we know now are getting a load of research to support them and to support their effectiveness um, but you know box breathing highly mm. effective
1: yeah really sounds like we're in a, an age where there's much more of a coming together of psychology and, and, and neuroscience is that is that right
0: yeah yeah for sure yes I'm a psychologist. We were all trained in CBT, you know, standard cognitive behavioural therapy. And I, as, as I said, it has its place. It has had its place. It's very limited in its effectiveness for a lot of people. And I think we have all moved on from that now. If a good psychologist or good coaches have have recognised that there's more to it than that. I was always much more interested in mindfulness, meditation, um, acceptance and commitment therapy, for example which are much more focused on, you don't need to try and fix yourself. You don't need to fix anything you, you need to work with, you know, there's going to be struggle in life. You, you just need to come to who you are. What are your values? What's most important to you? What's the meaningful struggle? Because a a focus that's on ridding yourself of struggle or feeling sad or feeling anxious is fruitless. You know, we just have to, Mm. um, so yeah, breathing, meditation, who are you? What's a meaningful life look like for you? How can you do the things that matter the most and be willing to tolerate a little discomfort along the way? And what's the higher purpose? You know, so because that's what makes the struggle meaningful when you can come to the higher purpose. What are you about? What, What are your values? What are you here for? What's the legacy you want to leave? To me, that's always been a much more effective approach.
1: Love it. Love it. What a uh, great place to, to pause on the on the main questions, Cass. It's been fascinating conversations so far. Let me just finish up with a couple of quickfire ones that I like to ask guests of the show. What would you say is one book that has really had a significant impact on you? Or if you want to answer it a slightly different way, a book that you find yourself frequently recommending or, or gifting to other people?
0: Oh, interesting. So I need to put a little disclaimer that I don't get to read well. I have to read so much that I don't often get to finish a book. I when I interview authors, I try to read their book, so it doesn't leave me much time to just read for my own interest, unless I'm on holidays or something. Yeah. yeah. One book that really that I did get to read when I was on holidays and I was completely absorbed by it was "Daring Greatly" by Brené Brown, and I think you know that's probably because it really probably speaks to a lot of these topics that we've been talking about today, like you know dropping other people's opinions, dropping the perfectionism and the people pleasing and, you know, knowing what you're about and being willing to put yourself out there and be vulnerable in the service of something that matters. So I really did love that book. I could probably mention a couple of other, the the one that I always used to recommend when I was working with clients was The Happiness Trap by Russ Harris, because as I said, I was a, I was a lot into um, acceptance and commitment therapy. And to me, that was the most, I mean, it is, it's a global bestseller for a reason, because it is the best kind of step-by-step walkthrough of acceptance and commitment therapy. And the clients that I had who actually like took that book and did the exercises and read the book, they almost didn't need to come and see me because it really took them through the process very effectively.
1: Very cool. And I love this question. And I always have to caveat it with other than your mobile phone. Oh, yeah. What would you say is one item that if it were to be lost, stolen, or broken, you'd find yourself immediately going out to replace?
0: Probably this microphone. <laughs> I have a podcast and I, you know, I have my own podcast in Australia. And I reckon, you know, this is not my only microphone, Ben. And the other one's not even broken. So I do have a bit of a, <laughs> <laughs> a fetish for. <laughs> <laughs> microphones and lights and cameras and recording equipment it's really it's a passion of mine so yeah if this microphone wasn't working I'd be straight out to get another one.
1: Well I'm slightly similar and I wonder if this is in some way linked to a, a degree of imposter syndrome right I just keep thinking if I just have a slightly different <laughs> bit of kit yes. will, will my know. will my podcast <laughs> and my like virtual training be a little bit better just if I had a slightly better microphone?
0: <laughs> yeah, look, I, I can relate. I can relate. This is not my own set um my first set of headphones either. There's another one packed away. Oh yeah, no, that one's I'm still looking at maybe is this really the best microphone? I think there might be there might be another yeah. one that's better. Uh,
1: Cass, it's been such a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for giving up your time, sharing your sort of knowledge, expertise and and wisdom with, with kind of the my audience has been been amazing. I'm sure it's gonna be a fascinating episode and really helpful for people. So thank you so much.
0: Thanks for having me, Ben. And as you and I know, I'm new to the UK. I'm looking to take on new coach, coaching clients, you know. Um, so anybody wants to look me up, get in touch, you know, have a look at my online program and, of course, the Audible original.
1: Cool. We'll be sure to pop your contact details in the show notes so people can, can do that really easily if they want to.
0: Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Ben.
1: That was episode 122, folks, and I'd love to know what you thought of it and which parts really resonated with you. Do please connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm on there as Ben Morton Leadership and let me know what you think. or Alternatively, you can click on the feedback link in the show notes. And whilst you're taking a look around the show notes, do remember to check out my 10 for 10 leadership programme. As I said, it's totally free and it gets consistently great feedback. And before you go, I have one small favour to ask of you that will take no more than a couple of minutes. Wherever you're listening, please could you rate, review and subscribe to the show. It really does make a huge difference and enables us to keep bringing you more and more interviews with amazing guests for you to learn with and from. That is it, though, for this episode, folks. Look after yourself. Look after those you've got the privilege and responsibility to lead. And as always, lead on. Mm -hmm.